Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin from EPAM Continuum. When is smaller better than bigger? Now, that is a question that I do not recommend Googling while you're at work, although the consensus seems to be that kidney stones are always better when they are smaller. But what about companies and their ability to be innovative? Is it better to have a large, established R&D department or to be a small, nimble startup? Conventional wisdom suggests that startups are able to be more innovative than larger companies and that, in fact, big organizations are inevitably less innovative. Well, today's guest rejects that premise. Gary Pisano hails from Harvard Business School, where he is a professor of business administration and the senior associate dean of faculty development. He's recently written a book, Creative Construction, that explores how larger and more complex organizations can leverage their scale for advantages in innovation. Gary recently discussed his book and a range of other topics with EPAM Continuum's John Campbell. Let's hear what they had to say about how organizational technology needs just as much investment as IT, the essential role that candor with one's colleagues plays in innovation, and why ultimately, just because small is beautiful, it doesn't mean that big is ugly. So maybe starting off, I I would love to to hear a little bit about how you got interested in in innovation and and how to help large organizations sustain it, right? Which is kind of the the central thesis of your, your new book. Right. So my interest in innovation goes way back. It's, uh, you know, several decades back to the early 1980s uh, before I had even graduated college. I was doing research as an undergraduate on the economics of innovation. Uh, so I kind of fell in love with the whole intellectually uh, f- fell in love with the uh, the impact that technology and technological change has on economic performance. And that's why I went to grad school. Uh, and so I spent my whole career studying innovation in various guises but I'd say in the last five to seven years, I began to see something that both puzzled me, uh, but also started to bother me at some point, which was in company after company that I was visiting, either writing cases on or doing consulting with, a lot of the larger companies, there is almost a defeatist attitude about innovation. That is, we're large um, we're never really going to be as innovative as a startup. That's what everybody tells us. And they had started to believe that. And then, of course, if you believe that, then that's going to be the reality because who's going to go to work for a company where everybody says we can't be innovative? You're not going to hire people who have that spark. Right. And while I had done a lot of my work, both in large companies, but also I've been involved with small companies. I've been a co-founder of a company. I've served on boards of startup companies. So I'm a big believer that small is beautiful. I think entrepreneurial companies are fantastic. They're they're a huge spark for our economy. But just because one believes that small is beautiful, it doesn't mean big has to be ugly. And I think we had gotten into that mode that big was equated with ugly. And and that was the, the issue that I decided to attack as I looked at my research and looked at other research on the topic. I realized it didn't have to be that way, that there are challenges for large companies for innovation, but they're not insurmountable. Right, right. So, so, so maybe talking a little bit about creative construction, the the new book. Um, what was the genesis of that? Mainly around how I can help organizations start to have that confidence around innovating. Yeah, it was really written as a, a guidebook, if you will, for larger companies who were starting the the journey, mm-hmm. and. I had been asked by a number of my clients who were larger companies who had at one point in time might have been innovative but had lost their their innovative verve and 
they retained me to help them kind of restart that. And what I found is I'd go into these companies, they often had little pieces of the puzzle they were working on. So they'd say something like, we're trying to get more innovative and we have decided to adopt open innovation or design thinking or just some other tool around innovation. And you know, what I would try to explain to them is those are tools and they're really can be really great tools, but they're just one tool in a broader system that you need to build. You need to think about it in a more integrative or systematic fashion. So I would run workshops for them and, and I would run workshops about innovation strategy, systems, and culture. Because I believe that strategy, systems, and culture are really the foundations of all organizational capability. And what started to happen is they'd ask me, is there something we can read about this? If you're going to run a three-day workshop, is there a book you can assign that we can all read or a primer? And I thought about lots of the great books written on innovation, but they didn't quite cover it that way. They didn't actually cover cover innovation in its entirety. There were books on various methods. There were books on various, um, you know, strategic aspects or culture. But there wasn't something that you could really say, here's a kind of guide, a primer, if you will, for how do you build an innovation capability if you are a larger company. And by larger, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be uh, General Motors. I mean, companies, I, I point out in the book that there's only... 5,000 companies in the world with sales above a billion dollars. So any company worth above a billion dollars is already a really big company. Sure. The, um, you, you're, you're mentioning of the, uh, the strategy, systems, and culture. Uh, in, in the last chapter, you actually talked about that as organizational technology. And, and you actually opened that chapter by talking about how you know, you don't you don't arrive at a company and they uh, you're a new employee or you you know you're showing up and they give you an Apple II from 1977. Uh, companies are constantly upgrading technology. Why don't they upgrade the the organizational technology? And it actually reminded me of a, a cartoon I'm sure you've seen uh, where there's two executives talking and the one says we need to train our people and the executive says what if we train them and they leave. And the other says, what if we don't and they stay? And I, lo- I love that notion. Yeah. And it, it, for some reason, it reminded me a little bit of your notion on org technology and how there seems to be this either lack of appetite or a, a, um, a, uh, a underappreciation of the importance of it. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I mean, and this is, this is one of the areas that's always fascinated me for my whole career. If you ask kind of why I became a, a, a scholar of, in, a, in a business school, a scholar of organizations. I mean, that's how I sort of think about myself. Is I'm a trained as an economist, but I study organizations, and I happen to study a lot about innovation. But but ultimately, I'm fascinated by organizations because we, we kind of live in them. And organizations are fascinating because they're completely human created. You know, they're not they're not natural. <laughs> we they we we built up these things called organizations to help us do things we can't do on our own, and we kind of take that for granted. And then what we take for granted is everything about organizational life was designed in some way, just like in this room, just like the way you as designers design the physical environment around us and everything around us is is designed by somebody. The same is true of organizations. So every system you use, every, you know, policy, policy every strategy, these are things that people thought up. I mean, things that we take for granted, accounting systems. Accounting systems didn't exist at one time. Somebody thought them up, thought this would be a good idea to keep track of how a business is doing. And, you know, uh, Italian merchants came up with double entry bookkeeping and boards of directors. Well, boards of directors were invented. They weren't like 
that they weren't given to us. Uh, you know, Adam and Eve didn't have boards of directors. Right? I mean, there, 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 there's there. So we constantly invent new organizational technology, but we don't think of it in the same way. If somebody creates, invents a, a new electronic device, you know, the transistor, we say, wow, look at that, how that changed the world. But when somebody invents a new organizational form or new institutional arrangement, we we often sort of fail to forget it was an inventive or creative act. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I'd like organizations to do is become much more conscious of the fact that they have to invest in their organizational technology in the same way they have to invest in their technology technology. And where does that, where does that live? Um, I, I, I think one of the, the central themes within your book is that it, it lives and dies with leadership. But is that the CEO? Is that because it's, I think, it, I think it easily, if you hear organizational technology, someone may go, oh, give that to HR, mm -hmm. right? But, mm -hmm. but what are your thoughts on where that should live? So it's a great question. I think currently it lives nowhere in particular. So if you asked about technology, uh, you know, hard technology, um, you'd say, where's it live? So, well, you know, R&D is heavily responsible. Yeah, we all play in it. But, you know, I can point to you the head of R&D. I can point you to a vice president of R&D. Who's, who's the throat to choke? Yeah, you, right. Or if you said information technology, well, we have a CIO and, you know, ultimately I can point to them. And there's, uh, you know, process technology where I can point to, you know, our head of manufacturing. I mean, you organizational technologies, it's everywhere and nowhere. And, there, and as a result, it's nowhere. So I personally think great leadership and the CEO are really the head of organizational technology. And I think that's what great leaders do. They think about how their organizations work. And I think they go hand in hand, kind of organizations which are innovative in terms of their products and services are also organizationally innovative. And I think those two go, go hand in hand because when you look at really innovative organizations, they invent a lot of the ways they do innovation. They don't just look at what others are doing. And I think, you know, your firm is a great example of that. You've developed ways of designing, which you kind of made up. I mean, you tried them out and you experiment. You designed them. You, you said, let's try it. I'm sure it's been constantly evolving. Yes, you look at what others are doing because you want to learn from others. But you don't just grab something off the shelf from someone else and say, okay, let's do our design work that way. And I think, you know, a, a lot of times when you look at very innovative companies. Initially, they're doing something in their approach to innovation, which a lot of people say, oh, that, that's a really not, doesn't make sense. Why would you do it right. that way? But in fact, it's because they've invented something new in their organizational approach to innovation. Yeah. I, I really love that idea because I think so many times people talk about innovation, they look at the external artifact, a new business model, a new product or service. And they think about it from a process standpoint, but not how people work, the culture, and all those things that allow that to to, to come to life. So I, I think that's a really interesting yeah. notion around how to how to uh, I guess look at under peel the onion back. I suppose on that. Yeah, we don't see it, right? I mean, you know, you see the product, or you see the service, you experience the product or service as a customer, but rarely do you get inside. I mean, I fortunately get inside a lot of organizations, so I could see how they how they work. Right, right. The um, the title of the book, Creative Construction, is is kind of the a response to uh, you know you quote uh, Schumpeter's Creative Destruction um, um, in there, and one of the things that if I could just kind of like quote back a little bit of that was you know Schumpeter talks about many companies die a natural death as men die of old age, and the natural cause in the case of firms is precisely their inability to keep up the pace in innovating, which they themselves have been instrumental in setting in their time of vigor. And so your whole book is about that inevitable decline, and, it, and it's spot on what you said around this is not a natural phenomenon, right? So there is no like, 
like old old age that takes a human out that, yep. that naturally or inevitably takes out um, an, an organization. Why do so many people feel like once you get to a certain size, this decline is inevitable or this innovation is is too hard to do? I mean, I think we sometimes take too seriously the metaphor between the product life cycle. The, you know, we say the life cycle of a firm, and 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 again, as I point out. You know, organizations are human-made creations, so they don't actually follow natural laws. Uh, where biology, we are biological creatures, and we follow certain laws of biology and physics. So right. we we do age. We work hard not to age as much, and we try to slow that down. Uh, but we're on a one-way street, uh, and um, but organizations don't have to be that way, right? right? But we we kind of. Uh, again, I think if we don't ask the question that way, we, we we can fall into the trap. Now, I do think as organizations both age and grow in size, there is complexity that can make it more challenging. So they just have more moving parts. And when you're, whenever you have a system with more moving parts, then changing any of those parts gets harder because they're sure. interconnected. Or you have to worry about your brand and or your – you know organizations get big by being successful doing something – uh, uh, almost by definition. Um, but then if you're going to innovate, you've got to do something different and then you have to think about how it relates to what you were doing that made you successful. So that's more complicated than if you were a startup where you have a blank sheet and you don't have an existing business. So I do think there are complexities that set in with scale and some with age, but I think it's more scale. And um, you know you need to you need to manage those and and proactively attack those and that's what I try to offer in the book is a way to think systematically about those challenges so that you can you can attack them proactively right right yeah there's a there's a I live in Cambridge there's a telephone pole on Mass Ave kind of between Harvard and Porter that's started to collect over the years band posters and everything and I I tell clients a lot of times that that's not too dissimilar from the detritus that kind of builds up in an organization and its policies and procedures. And then you say, well, can't we skip that this time? And someone says, no, but they're not really sure why. And that's how those ideas start to, to, Absolutely. to, to die, right? For, Just asking why yeah, goes yeah. a long way. Like, why do we do that? Right, right. Is that really necessary? And sometimes you find it's not. There's right. an awful lot of, uh, I guess, the it's, is it your appendix which serves no particular yeah, use, like or at least as far as modern science knows, or maybe that's not true anymore, but uh, I guess it was, I was, was taught that your appendix is just there. You don't, you don't the, need it anymore. You don't need it anymore. Right. And there's certainly lots of people going around without their appendices. So um, yeah, that's that happens. There's right. lots of that stuff in organizations. Yeah, maybe organizations now, there's a lot of like uh, uh, like VPs of appendix or something. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. right. And there's processes that are like that and sure, sure. constraints. Um, so one of, one of the things you wrote to that to that end is uh, that organizational cultures, like everything else about organizations, are human creations, um, and as such, they can be shaped through the hand of management. And then there's this discussion around um, organizations using their imagination and successfully making a vision a reality. Mm-hmm. So, kind of along the lines of kind of the detritus, what are those roadblocks uh, that that you see that keep organizations from having imagination and then? making those a reality. I, mean, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, just the imagination about what the company can be, what it should do, how it should do things. Uh, it goes a little bit back to the uh, a mentality that sets in that says, uh, you know, we can't do that. Uh, and then nobody asks why. Um, there are often systems that get built up over time that make it hard to do it. So say the way you fund projects or the way you recruit and promote people. 
I do think what starts to happen is is the culture starts to erode. Mm-hmm. So it's you just get the mentality is changing and the habit is not to ask questions about the way things are done or to challenge the way things are done and a kind of willingness to entertain new ideas or even unre- what seem to be unreasonable ideas goes away. It's not rewarded. If you do it in the organization, nobody's going to say, great, they're going to kind of look at you. I mean, culture is a really powerful control mechanism of organizations. So there's two basic types of control mechanisms in organizations. There's formal control mechanisms like budgeting, processes, and procedures, things you can read about. And then there's culture. So culture is like the kind of unwritten rules of how things work. Sometimes there's an overlap between them. But in fact, cultures are is the set of norms and behaviors. And I define culture as... It's, it's, I heard somebody once say this. I think it's a great working definition. It's how you behave when no one's looking. Yeah, and you behave that way not because it's your incentive to behave that way, but because that's the way you feel you should behave to be part of this group. But if you're in a culture that doesn't reward, doesn't make you feel good about challenging the status quo, you're not going to do it. You're going to feel it, it's it's very powerful. It can be very suppressing. So cultures can be very suppressing. I mean, they are. They're, they're behavioral control mechanisms. That's what a culture does. So it can suppress things. Uh, it could, and, it's unfo- and if they suppress good things, like new ideas, that's, that's a problem. Right, right. Yeah, I feel, I feel like, you know, having, having been a consultant for, for 20-odd years, um, you can often, in a, in a first engagement or a first meeting, sniff out those organizations that are more fearful. Culturally, right? You can start to read some of the 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 body language and the reaction to discussing you know the level of innovation ambition and the mm-hmm. like versus those organizations that kind of lean forward and are like yeah right. let's let's try that absolutely and I, I think you're right that very much uh, it's that that idea of well what's the boss going to say or what what is expected of me and am I pushing too much if I start to question dogma and the and the like absolutely is there um is there some specific um, attributes of a good leader of innovation that you could share for listeners? So I think, um, yes, uh, you know, they, first of all, I think they are people who hold themselves accountable and they create, I mean, again, I think it's what they do with the culture is they create an accountability culture, but they themselves, they hold themselves accountable with, while paradoxically though, allowing the organization freedom and they delegate. So they, and this is, takes a lot of courage which is, I'm going to let you run with the ball on this. I'm not going to tell you how to do the job. I'm going to be clear about what I think the goals are, where we want to go, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to trust you to figure it out. To figure it out. But then they ultimately hold themselves accountable. And I tell that story in the book of one leader, uh, Paul Stoffels at Johnson and Johnson, where you know they had a a program fail in late stage of clinical trials and it was expensive write-off and the board wanted to know, you know, who basically in code word, who do we fire? And he just stood up and said, you want to fire somebody? I'm paraphrasing, but basically he said, you know, you want to fire somebody, you fire me. I'm the president of R&D. I'm accountable. I'm responsible. I can't, you know, otherwise we'll never innovate if we just keep. But but he makes it clear to other people in his organization is that's what he expects of them. So if you want to work for me, you have to have the same attitude. So I think that is a really powerful feature of uh, of, of leaders. I think the other is they're very candid. They're and I and candor is something I talk about in the book is one of the behaviors of innovative cultures. That's one that's often hard for people to swallow. 
But I think they are themselves very candid with people. Uh, they're they're respectful, but you can be respectful and candid. So you don't have to guess what they're thinking. And they demand candor. Yep. And I think that is something else uh, that really good leaders of, of innovation uh, you know, share in common. Yeah, we have um, – I, I grew up in Texas originally. We have a saying uh, uh, growing up that uh, don't push the peanut under the rug, right? Yeah, like, yeah. You, you, start to, you start to kind of hide results or outcomes and, and all of it's still there, right? Uh, and so that candor helps elevate where things really sit, where to invest, how things are going. Uh, where do you continue to, to, to put your time and, and resources? You can't innovate without candor, right? right? Because if you think about it as a, a process of, of iterative problem solving, you're never going to solve a problem. You're never going to make something better unless I can look at you and say, look, in all due respect, I think that solution is not working. Here's why. And we can't debate it. And others can't learn from that debate. I, I, and so I've been – after the book, I started to do some uh, – Surveys of organizations based actually cl- companies that I consult for who asked me to assess after they read that part of the book they said would you help us assess our culture for innovation so I have a this idea about these five paradoxes of innovative cultures the kind of stuff that we all love and want to embrace and then kind of the harder truth side the tougher side around discipline and intolerance for incompetence candor accountability etc <clears throat> and so what is what I found in that. In, in a number of the companies I've worked with, there's there's differences across all companies. But the one that's kind of just jumping off the page across all the organizations so far is the low candor scores. Really? It's baffling. And if you think about it, we're born candid. Yep. Um, and if you have young kids, I think we were talking before, if you have a kid between the ages of sort of three and 10, I mean, you know they're darn candid. I think they're also pretty darn candid as teenagers to you about some things, not others. But I mean, so we're we're kind of. It's not like we're born uncandid. We're born candid, and when you survey most people, they say that they are honest. And so it's interesting. We're born candid. We claim we're honest, and then we go into organizations. And what is it about an organizational climate where we check our candor at the door? Um, and you know, it's. I think it's an endemic problem. You know, the meetings that where people don't say things, but then they grab the boss afterward to tell them how they really think. And that's indicative of a problem. And that lack of transparency isn't just, I mean, in some sense, toxic, but it's indicative of lack of trust. But it's also, it really hurts problem solving. You can't have open debate about things. Because if I can't hear your work, if, if you go to my boss and critique my idea, I have no chance to respond. And, and not only is that not fair, we actually lose information. Yes. So if I can counter you in the meeting, we can have a, a, you know, a full-throated debate and argument over something. Others around the table might be able to figure out what's going on and say, aha, here's, here's where we should go. We can learn from that. But if you're playing your cards close to the vest in the meeting and then you reveal your cards outside to someone else who's then influenced, decisions may get made that we don't understand and they may be bad decisions. So I, I've become really intrigued by how to uh, – work on the candor aspects of innovation. And is that just an underlying culture of, of kind of fear or kind of a zero-sum like view of, the, of success? I mean, what, what, what do you think is kind of underlying it, it, that? So I think a few things drive lack of candor. I think um, partly it's, it's, it's a different kind of fear. I, I think it's – so some of it is the kind of fear of if I'm candid with my boss, do they not like what I have to say – uh, and will they retaliate? But I think it's more, it's actually even more complex than that. 
it's um, in a lot. Well, first of all, I think candor's hard. So nice personally to give. You don't want to upset people. You don't want to be negative. Sure. So we all like to tell people your idea is great. I love it. You know, as opposed to I don't like your idea. Um, but beyond the interpersonal, so in a lot of organizations where decision making isn't clear, they're highly matrixed and they have a lot of comp- complex governance. The way things get done is through having social capital that you can use. I need friends. Right. If I want my idea to go forward, I need to get three other people on board to push. And so you need to log roll. So during the meeting where your idea is being discussed, I keep my mouth shut because I need you. Ne- I know I need you next week and I don't want to tick you off by criticizing you. So I nod my head at the meeting and say, great idea, even though I think it's flawed. And because I know next week I need you to be happy. I'm in that same position. Right. Okay. That's right. So, th- and so that's log rolling. This is what Congresses do all the time. And as I like to point out, Congresses are many things, but innovative is not something I would generally <laughs> describe them to be, right? So if we want that behavior, that's, that's the behavior of a, of a Congress or a parliament. So I think it's part of it, it relates to lack of individual accountability. Yep. So if you have individual accountability, people demand candor. Because they're, they know their, their butt's on the line. So you're crazy or you're a fool if you're not going into a meeting saying to folks, tell me now what the problem is. I, I, I'm not going to tolerate you people sitting around nodding at me. Um, then I go out and, and launch a terrible product. And that could damage my career. Tell me now while we're, we're sitting around in the planning phase of this that I'm totally screwed up. Right. And, but again, as a leader, you have to welcome that. You have to create, you know, there's ways to behave in a way that folks know, hey, he or she is serious about the 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 desire to be crit- critiqued because it's about making the idea better. So it's outcome driven. Uh, yeah, outcome driven. Right. And I think organizations based on meritocracy and, and outcomes driven have that. When, when we talk to people about um, a, a human-centered design or design thinking approach within, within um teams we talk a lot about you can be you can disagree without being disagreeable exactly and i think that's a bit of that kind of brut- brutally candid yeah. without being yeah yeah and I, I used the word in the writing i think i said brutally candid or brutally frank it, it attracts attention and then but i'm very quick to say is look i don't mean being brutal as a person right it just means sometimes it, sometimes the truth sometimes candor is brutal whether you like it or not and and it, it's in the sense that look i've been working on something for a long time and some of the industries i study like life sciences where people are at things for years and and then to be told as respectfully as you can imagine that your idea is flawed. Somebody really points out a flaw in your idea or your data. That's tough. I mean, I, there's just no way around it. But that's okay. It's healthy and you have to get over it. But yeah, you don't want – there's no value as far as I can tell of being brutal, of people being nasty brutal. That that just I think that just leads to uh, all sorts of dysfunctionality. Plus, it doesn't seem like it would be very pleasant to work in a place like that. But I think it's where you have to get this comfort level with we're going to debate. We're going to debate openly. We're going to debate sharply. Nothing slides. And uh, you know, but we're we're whole as people at the end of the day. And I think as a leader, you have to be able to step in and watch what's going on and say, is the debate here? Have we crossed the line? From kind of brutally candid to just plain brutal, because that's right. not helpful. No, counterproductive. Counterproductive. But let's make sure if there's an issue, we raise it even if it's really, really uncomfortable for everybody to deal with. Let's let's deal with it. Right. So I think that's an important yeah, distinction. One of the uh, one of the concepts that that you already mentioned was this notion of the paradox of innovative cultures. And it, it 
it is really interesting, this balance between tolerance for failure and intolerance for incompetence, willingness to experiment versus highly disciplined. Um, culture, as we talked about, is really hard as it is. And then to try to find the right balance for that uh, is, is not easy. Thoughts on how an organization can can start to get better at those those yeah. balances, right? Yeah. I mean, the first is just to recognize it. So what I found in, in, in my work is I was a little frustrated I found so many organizations who talked about wanting to have an innovative culture, and they didn't have it. And that was baffling because all the behaviors that we described that people associate with innovative culture seem to be really um, – everybody wanted them. I'd go around asking in seminars, how many of you want to work in an organization like this? Well, who doesn't want tolerance for failure, willingness to experiment, collaboration, you know, flat, you know, psychologically – everybody loves that stuff. And so if that's – like everybody loves it, why aren't you doing it? It can't be – you can't just blame the boss. Right. So I actually run these seminars where the CEO is in the room and they want it and they say they don't have it. It's like, okay. And, you know, what I discovered is, yes, innovative organizations have those have those values and those traits, but they actually have these other ones which are a little less palatable for many people. Uh, you know, intolerance or incompetence, they're highly disciplined, high individual accountability, brutally candid, and very strong leadership that they don't and and so what the first thing if you recognize that's the paradox, then the organization is prepared for what it has to do to be an innovative culture. Because what happens is if you think it's all the, the 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 kind of milk and honey side, the walk in the park, and then you start having to be disciplined, then you get you get people very cynical very fast. So you almost have to prepare them. And I use the analogy of it's not a walk in the park. We're hiking Everest. We're doing it. Everest is great. When you get to the top, apparently it's very beautiful, but there's hell to pay along the way. It's going right. to be this is and at least getting people into that mindset so they're they're ready and understand it. I think that's a a really first start. I think the second thing is for the leaders themselves. The hard part becomes for the leaders themselves who have to balance both of them in their head. So they actually have to own the paradox of, yes, I want to tolerate failure, but no, I'm not going to tolerate incompetence. I can see the difference between that. I'm going to be articulate about the difference between that. So I think the leaders constantly have to reinforce it. And people ask me, when do you do that? And I say, like, every day. Like It's like the, you don't have a time to do culture. It's the second you walk in the door, you're doing it. And these these balances will come up in every meeting, every discussion, and you just have to be really conscious of them. Sure, sure. Uh, the um, this notion of leadership being absolutely critical. I suppose one of, one of the challenges that I see quite frequently is that um, leadership is often focused on the near term. Even though you could often argue that leadership, or you should argue that, that a CEO should be as focused on where the organization's going, because everyone else is kind of focused on the near term. What are the pressures there and how does an organizational leader find the right balance between making today's dollar, right, and also mapping the future? This to me is the essence of what great leadership is and great strategy is and being formal about your thinking on that. Every organization has this trade-off. Some people say, well, you know, we, we can't worry about the short term. That's baloney. You have to worry about the short term. You have to pay the bills. You have to keep the lights on. You know, the analogy is I've, in the past I'd studied some uh, race car, uh, actually motorcycle racing teams and it's like they have to invest in this year's bike or next year's bike because their long term is next season not this season so i can win and get points this season or maybe finish high in the standings or invest in and i only have so much money and time to do it so how do you think about that balance and that's what every business goes through um i i think there it's this is where strategy really helps to be able to quantify and or think systematically and rigorously through the trade-offs of today versus the future but i do think it's 
the leader's responsibility and the leadership team and in a publicly held company, the board of directors to own that longer term because they are the constant. There's a lot of turnover in organizations, shareholders coming in and out, people coming in and out to some extent. Um, but, you know, the enterprise itself has got to endure. And so they need to think about I think that I think there's not a right answer as to what the right balance is because in, in some companies you have to be if you're in trouble you have to be very short sighted you know if you're about if you're losing money and you could go bankrupt in the next year you better be darn short sighted yeah don't worry about five years from yeah now. I mean don't worry about five years from now right you've got a crisis deal with it um, so I think it's it's context specific I think it's just being articulate and clear with all the stakeholders about the trade off you're making and the model how it works so again for a publicly held company this way the investors know what they're buying into. You know, if you're a company who's paying out very large dividends, uh, you're going to attract a certain kind of investor. But that that could affect your balance between short and long term, right. uh, long term investors, and what you can do from an investment point of view. Uh, some companies, I think, are very clear about that. Corning, in their uh, I point out in the book, Corning in their annual report always has this model about how they invest their capital flows, and they they've kind of quantified it in terms of here's where the money goes, here's here's what we're allocating to these businesses, here's the short, here's the immediate, uh, the existing businesses. And, and, and longer-term innovation, research. And so they're, they're being transparent about it. I think when companies are transparent about it, I think people can rally around it and they understand it and then they can understand how those trade-offs are being, being made. Um, I, and I don't think there's a, a magical solution to it. Um, you know, and some organizations have to be very long-sighted if uh, I've been involved with uh, you know, startup companies in the biotech sphere where – we have to be short-sighted in the sense of making sure we have enough money to get to next year or the year beyond. But we're often developing stuff that's not going to be on the market for a very, very long time away. So we know we're in it for the long haul. Um, and the mentality of the folks involved, like directors and senior leaders, has to be around having, you know, uh, has to be quite quite long-sighted, the mentality. Sure. So, so one last question. The... Uh the book ends with this message around, you know, the need for creative, constructive leaders has never been greater. Um, is, is is there are, are we on the rise, or do you think we're we're on the decline? And you're hoping we can get it back on the rise in terms of the leadership. At least I I, I see leadership improving all the time. I'm pretty optimistic about it. That's great. I, I think um, you know, there's just uh, I don't want to say a new generation of leaders because I don't think it's a it's a it's a a, a discreet break, but uh, you know, I meet so many really impressive people in my job who I think understand these issues around the need to balance short and long term, who are investing in the enterprise, who are who who see the organization as something uh, as a uh, all organizations as a work in process. You know, they're constantly evolving. So I do, I do see that, um, and I think we've had in the last you know, 10, 15 years, a lot of really successful large companies, which which are setting a, new, a model for those to follow. You know, you look at a company like Google with a trillion dollars in market cap. Um, that's, you know, I think that gets folks to get out of the mentality of, gosh, if we're big, we can't do it. So if they can do it, why can't we? And I think that helps a lot. So I, I, I think, you know, I'm optimistic about this. I think we do have this... Um, generation of of leaders uh, who are who can be creative constructors and i think that's been the constant that's been a history of management for a long time the management mentality changes and management technology changes over time and so i'm i'm hopeful my book has contributed to that uh 
but I'm optimistic about the future. That's awesome. Well, we'll end it on that great note. Great. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. This was fun. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Thanks. EPAM Continuum integrates business, design, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Gary Pisano and John Campbell for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, innovative at any scale. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Thank you.